So last week we covered the first six verses of Romans 7. And Romans 7 is a very important chapter. And as I said last week, probably one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible. And it's too bad Paul is not alive today to come and break it down a little farther for us. But we are doing our best by God's grace to follow the principles of the book of Romans that we've been studying so far and apply it as we get to Romans 7. Now, we spent the entire time last week on the first six verses of Romans 7, and I'm just going to do a very quick run-through of those verses so that as we pick up verse 7, it will make sense as we move forward. So in verse 2, it talks about a woman who is married to her husband, and she's bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And if her husband is dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. And so we have the diagram up here. Here's the woman. She's married to her husband. And then it talks about that if her husband dies, if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress because the law of marriage is no longer binding to her first husband because he's dead. So now she can be married to another man. And we see this in verse 2. And then in verse 3, so, but if her husband is living and she is married to another man, she's called an adulteress. That's pretty straightforward. <clears throat> and then in verse 4, Paul then makes the application to our Christian experience. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another. So here's... Here's the another. It says, even to Christ. Let me get this right here. <clears throat> even to him, which is Christ, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And as we saw last week, <clears throat> Paul makes the illustration of being married to Christ, who is raised from the dead, because in Romans 6, when it talks about Christ being raised from the dead, it says that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So then when we become married to Christ, it means that we have a new life. And the person that we used to be married to is called the old man. But... The person that we should be married to is Christ. But the only way to be married to Christ is for the old man to die. Which is why in Romans 6, verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that's Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed. So naturally... Our natural tendency is to live according to the flesh or to be married to the old man. And according spiritually to the law of marriage, if you're married to the old man, 
you cannot be married to Christ. Or the other way to look at it is, Christ will not be married to you if you're still married to somebody else. And the only way he'll marry you is not just for you to leave that old man, but for that old man to be dead. Because it's, it, you know, it, in our society, it's become such as like, well, I left that person, we didn't get along, I'm going to marry someone else. Biblically speaking, that's still adultery. So the only way Christ will marry you is if that old man was actually crucified. Then he'll marry you. And we talked about this last week um, in Ephesians 5, that it's a mystery for two flesh to become one flesh. And Paul says the greater mystery is concerning Christ and the church. That's the mystery of God, which the Advent movement was raised up to finish, Revelation 10:7. So we talked about that last week. So when the Advent movement is one flesh with Christ, which means when the Advent movement has had the experience of the old man being crucified, then the mystery of God will be finished, being one flesh with Christ. That's a beautiful message, isn't it? And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7. So once you understand the first six verses, then when we get to the, the experience of verses 7 through 25, we will understand what Paul is trying to say here. Um, so <clears throat> let's continue. Picking up in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So Paul has this habit of saying God forbid throughout the book of Romans. Um, in chapter 6, he says, What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Here he says, shall we say that the law is sin? God forbid. So the law is not a bad thing. Throughout the book, though, of Romans, the idea has been coming through that what the law does is point out sin, and because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, the law brings us under, or points out that we are under condemnation for breaking that law. But Paul makes it very clear here in chapter 7, he's like, but by the way, the law is not a bad thing. It's here for a reason. And notice what he says here at the end of chapter 7. He says, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now, which commandment is Paul quoting here? This is the 10th commandment out of the 10. Thou shalt not covet. Now, why does Paul pick the 10th commandment to make his illustration about breaking the law or what, how the law points out sin in our lives? What is the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. But what does it point out in our lives? It says it right there in the verse. Points out lust. Or the marginal reading is concupiscence. And chapter 7 goes back and forth between those two words interchangeably. Now, think about the 
concept of lust, is that something, um, let's just say, if you're looking at me right now, and, and God forbid that this should be my experience, but let's say that I have lust in my heart, and I'm breaking the 10th commandment, can any of you tell? No. You can't. I can be up here giving a Bible study on Romans 7, and, and, and honestly, I don't think I'm having lust in my heart, but I'm just saying, for the purpose of illustration, I could be having that, and you wouldn't be able to tell. You see the point? But Paul is saying the law points out sin on the inside. It's not just, hey, don't kill. I mean, the laws of the land can pick that up. I mean, someone goes out and shoots someone. They're, they're taken to jail for life. Or you go and steal, you go to jail. Or <clears throat> every other thing can actually be seen on an outward basis, essentially. But yet, as far as the other nine commandments, and yet what Paul is saying is, is that in reality, the fundamental basis underlying all of the law is our inward experience. It's not just an outward show. So the law points out in our heart what sin is. So Jesus had to come and teach the Jews, hey, you keep all these outward ceremonies religiously, but do you realize that if you um, look at a woman to lust after her that you've committed adultery in your heart? And the Jews weren't used to hearing that kind of a concept with respect to the law. So Jesus had to do that. And here Paul is saying, with respect to the law, the law points out sin, not just outwardly so that we're keeping rules and regulations on an outward basis. The outward forms should come from an inward experience. So Paul says, I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So moving on, verse 8, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, or lust. For without the law, sin was dead. And all Paul is saying here when he says without the law, sin was dead, it's like if there's no law, there's no sin. But with the knowledge of the law, sin is pointed out. Verse 9, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And all that's saying, again, is, is that where God's law is, it's going to point out sin. And all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 10, And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now notice this, the commandment is ordained to life. So the commandment says, look, here's the law, and if you keep it, you will live. Of course, there's no power in the law for you to keep it. But it's just saying if you keep the law and you're abiding by these ten principles, you're going to live. But yet Paul says, I found it to be unto death. And that's the experience of every human being. He's already pointed out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God in Romans 3. And in chapter 6, he says the wages of sin is death. So the commandment... We as human beings, we find it to be unto death, verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. And so, again, sin can be deceptive, and this is pretty straightforward. 
Verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So here are the adjectives for God's law. It's holy, it's just, and it's good. Now, <clears throat> if you ever want to answer the question, well, how can you say that the law of God is a transcript of his character? Go to Romans 7.12. The law is holy, just, and good. And you can use all those descriptions to describe God as well. God is holy, no question about it. He's just. All you have to do is go to Romans 3, um, verse 26, where it says, He is just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So, the law is holy, God is holy. The law is just. God is just. Yes, you had a question? Okay, so he, when he uses the word commandment, it's speaking of um, the law in general because he says when the commandment came, sin revived and I died and so forth. So um, the principles are all connected. So one commandment is connected to another. And in fact, you know, the Bible also says if you break one, you're guilty of offending all. So, and that's in the book of James. So <clears throat> one commandment, if you break one, you're breaking all of them. And the fact that he points out coveting as the, the, the thing that points out sin, it's pointing out the inward experience that connects to everything that we do. So Honoring our father and mother comes because we're surrendered to the Lord and we honor them because we love God and we love our parents. We have no other gods before us because we love God. It's an inward experience that then comes forth in outward fruits. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, just, and good. And continuing on, so verse 12 is a great verse to show that the law of God is a transcript of God's character. Verse 13, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. So the law is good. But sin, that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, as you recall at the beginning of chapter 7, he's speaking to those who know the law. And what he's trying to point out here is, is that those of us who know God's law, so these will be God's professed people, one of the purposes of the law is to show that sin is exceeding sinful. It's not, sin is not an okay thing. The purpose of the law is to point out that sin is bad. How bad is it? Exceedingly bad. So, <clears throat> if we are finding that sin doesn't seem bad, it could be because we don't have a proper understanding of God and of his law. And, <clears throat> right, and, and we'll get to that. So, <clears throat> Without wanting, and let me balance out what I just said by saying we've seen the goodness of God throughout the first six chapters of Romans. 
we've seen that naturally speaking we wander from God that we're worthy of condemnation and the judgment but God sent his son to die for us and has provided a way for us to be forgiven and to be changed and so one of the purposes of the law is to uplift Christ we see that because of the law and because we've broken it that Jesus had to be lifted up on the cross and die for us and as we see Jesus on the cross dying for us we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin and it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance and as we see Jesus on the cross it's our desire for the old man to be crucified with Christ so that we can be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead so the law required that Jesus die on the cross and as we see that it draws us to God the goodness of God leads us to repentance so then verse 14 and verse 14 is the key transition verse for the rest of the chapter and the rest of the chapter is sort of where there's various viewpoints but we'll try to make this as clear as possible verse 14 Paul says for we know that the law is spiritual so in verse 12 he says the law is holy the commandment is holy and just and good and here he says the law is spiritual so clearly when we're talking about God's law we're describing something that is a good thing it's a spiritual thing it's holy it's just and good and then there's the contrast in the second half of verse 14 Paul says but I am carnal sold under sin now <clears throat> if you are carnal let's try to diagram this out if you are carnal <clears throat> sold under sin <clears throat> are you keeping God's law you are sold under sin if you are sold under something who has dominion over you exactly you are a slave to sin so you're carnal sold under sin and when you are sold under something you think about you know the slavery in the early American history the slaves they would take them down to the market and sell them to a new master and whoever those slaves were sold to they were under that master and what Paul is saying is when I am carnal I am sold under sin which means that I am under the master of sin and if sin is your so you could say it this way sin is your master if you are carnal so you are sold under sin sin is your master or you are a servant of sin or a servant to sin and Romans 6 talks about the two options that we have we're either servants to God or servants to sin so when you are carnal you are not a servant of God you are you are sold under sin you are a servant to sin which means then that you may know that the law is spiritual 
you may know that the law is holy and just and good, but the law or the commandment is death to you. Because what happens when you are carnal and you see God's law? You see that you are under sin and you see that the wages of sin is death. And according to 1 John 3, 4, and Ellen White says this is the only definition for sin. This is the definition for sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. So if you are carnal, you are sold under sin, and you are under the condemnation of the law. Now, <clears throat> this, is this is very important because... Paul just said that he is carnal, sold under sin. And then in verse 15, he begins to describe the experience of the carnal man. And if you're just following the logical pro progression of Romans 7, that's an inescapable conclusion. Verse 15 does not then suddenly shift to, okay, we just talked about being carnal, sold under sin in verse 14, but now in verse 15, we're going to describe the spiritual experience. He just said, I am carnal, sold under sin, for that which I do I allow not. Do you see the, how that's connected to being carnal? For that which I do I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Now, if you understand that the carnal man is sold under sin, or is a servant to sin, or is a slave to sin, think about the illustration of, of a slave. Think about the slaves in early American history, which is a terrible, his, terrible record on our nation's history. The slaves... <clears throat> Do you think they got to do what they wanted to do? No, they didn't. They didn't get to do what they wanted to do, and they did things that they didn't want to do. That's the whole definition of what a slave is. They are under bondage to a master against their will, and they do things that they don't want to do, and they don't get to do the things that they want to do. So a slave is doing opposite to what he wants to do. So this is a person who knows what is right and wants to do what is right. He wants to be married to Christ but he's still carnal sold under sin, which means that he's still married to the old man, which means then that the old man is his master. So, continuing on. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. So, he's describing the experience of someone that is a servant to sin, sold under sin, carnal, but yet they know that the law is good, that it's holy, just, and good. Okay. The carnal mind is the law of God. Yeah. Right. Right. So we're going to get to, that's Romans 8. So, um, 
<clears throat> Romans 8 makes it very clear. So, <clears throat> then in verse 17, Paul says, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And let's take a little bit of time to understand verse 17. When you are carnal sold under sin, you are a slave to the master of sin. And so when Paul says, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Let's go back to our illustration at the beginning of Romans chapter 7. You have the woman married to her husband. And she's bound by the law of marriage to be married to him as long as he lives. But if he dies, she can be married to another man. And we have then the spiritual illustration that we, if any man be in Christ as a new creature, the old man has been crucified so we can be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, which is Christ. The reason why Paul uses the illustration of the woman being married to her husband and again, this is a biblical concept, and in some quarters this wouldn't be the most popular thing, but in Ephesians 5, verse 22, it says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So, wives submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. That's the biblical concept. Now, what's the significance of this? <clears throat> Let's think about this. Let's say... Okay, here's the woman. She's married to her husband, but the husband happens to be the old man. She submits to her husband, and the husband makes her do things that she doesn't want to do, and she doesn't get to do things that she wants to do. And you can think of many cases of um, spouse abuse, you name it. We can all think of cases of that. This is the woman married to the old man and she can't get out of that bad situation. And Paul is saying, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Now think about this. Imagine you're that same woman and instead of being married to the old man, you're now married to Christ, you're married to Christ and you submit yourself to Christ. What kind of a husband is Christ going to be to you? You're not going to have any complaints. I mean, he's going to treat you perfectly. So it's not a hardship to submit to Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here is when we are married to Christ, that's no hardship. He helps us. He comes into our lives, changes us, and we have a beautiful Christian experience. But if you're married to that old man, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You are a master to sin. So the I is still you, which is the flesh, married to the old man. And it's the old man that's controlling your life, which is sin. So it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So what all Paul is saying here is the sin that dwells in me is the sin that is master over me. I am a servant to sin. I am carnal, sold under sin. I am a slave to sin. I don't do the things that I want to do. I do the things that I don't want to do because sin is my master. I see the law of God. I see that it's holy and just and good, but yet sin still has dominion over me. 
sin is still my master. And yet in Romans 6, Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you when you are dead to sin, when the old man is crucified. So what Paul is saying here then is, look, I am, when I am carnal, I'm sold under sin, I am still a servant to sin, and being under bondage to that servant of sin makes me do the things I don't want to do. I break the law of God, even though I don't want to. And then I don't do the good things that I know I should be doing it. And it's because sin dwells in me and controls my life. And yet the mystery of God is that Christ comes into us so that Christ comes in and sin goes out. And so then it's no more, it's yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. That's Galatians 2.20. So it's either sin in control of my life or Christ in control of my life. Do you see that connection there? <clears throat> so let me diagram this here. <clears throat> In Romans 7, 17, Paul says, It is no more I, but sin that dwelleth in me. And if sin dwells in you, that means that Christ is not in you because Christ does not dwell where sin dwells. But yet in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So it's yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So, when you're crucified, that means the old man has been crucified. Now Christ lives in you. If the old man is not crucified, he or sin is what dwells in you. And so here's your two options for your masters. Either, sorry, either sin is your master, sin dwells in you, and sin makes you do the things that you don't want to do, and you don't do the things that you want to do, or Christ lives in you, and if Christ lives in you, Christ lives out his life in you. You don't have the power to keep the law. You see it. You know that it's holy, just, and good. But we are weak. We don't have the power to keep it. But Christ does. So if Christ lives in us, he is our master. We are servants to God, and he lives his life in us. So this is what Paul is explaining here in Romans 7. Continuing on, and verse 18 is also very important. Verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Does that sound familiar? It's like, you know, I have the will and the desire to serve God and to do what's right. But I don't know how to do it. Exactly. Paul is saying he has no power. And if you could think of one word, and this is describing what's in us, that is our flesh. If you could describe or find one word to describe this experience, what word would you pick? The word, how about the word weak? So I 
for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So I want to do what's right, but I don't have the power to do it. I am weak. Right. That means that these people that Paul is writing here is powerless in this They have somebody ruling over them that they have absolutely no power to resist right. or to set them free. Mm-hmm. They cannot set themselves free. They are in a bondage that is, they're completely engulfed in it and they, they have no power over them. That's right. Yeah, I like that. So in the book of Luke, Jesus says he's come to set the captives free. It's Luke 4.18. And clearly we see a captivity here, a bondage to the power of sin. So in our flesh dwells no good things. And when Paul says, in my flesh, the word flesh here is from the Greek word sarx. And... Basically, what that means is that is our fallen human nature. It's not I mean, what it mean, What it means is it encompasses everything. Um, obviously, our skin and bones and blood. But it also includes the weak tendencies that we are born with, and we all have the flesh to contend with. Uh-huh. Right. It's a testimony in exactly. Yes, for Paul as a Pharisee to admit that in his flesh he is weak is a testimony. So here we see that in our flesh the natural tendency is to be married to the old man, which makes us carnal, sold under sin which causes us to do the things that we don't want to do and to not do the things that we want to do. That's what it means to be weak. And he continues on the same theme here, verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. So same idea, verse 20, now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And again, he's repeating this concept. I am a servant to sin. Sin which dwells in me is my master, and I am captive or in bondage or in slavehood to the power of sin in my life, so that even though I want to do what's right, I don't have the power to do it. We, in and of ourselves, do not have the power to keep God's law. That's clear, and that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 21, he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now this is interesting, and this is one of the verses that people try to use to say, look, this is someone who is converted, but they just keep falling all the time. And what Paul is saying here is, look, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I see God's law, and I delight in the goodness of it. Praise the Lord that there is a standard to follow, and I want to do that. But look, if you are a servant to sin, if you are carnal, sold under sin, so you are a servant to that which you are sold under, even if you delight in something, if you are a servant, 
you don't have the power to do what you want to do because your master has the power over you to dictate to you how you're going to live your life. If you're a slave, your master dictates how you live your life. And so Paul says, look, I delight in the law of God, but yet, verse 23, he says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So look, here in his mind, he delights in the law of God, but yet there's another law in his members that wars against that law. And it brings, notice the word captivity here, it says bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So who is Paul, speaking of the carnal man here, who is the carnal man in captivity to? Says the law of sin. If you're in captivity to the law of sin, that means you're in bondage to the law of sin. That means you are a servant to the law of sin. That means you are sold under sin. And that means that you're not keeping God's law, even though you delight in it. So you can come to church every week, hear good sermons, and say, Praise the Lord, that's the kind of life I want to live. And yet, that other law that wars against the law of your mind that says, this is what I want to do, brings into captivity your life or your flesh to the law of sin. So that even though you delight after that which is good, you're finding yourself in captivity to sin. And verse 24 sums it all up. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? If you are in captivity to sin, the end result of sin is death. And we know that. We who know the law and we know what the law points out know that if our life is not in harmony with the law of God and we know that the only way for our life and to be in harmony with the law of God is for Christ to be in us, to be crucified with Christ. If our life is not in harmony with the law of God, the end result then is that we are a servant to sin and we will die. And what Paul says is, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In verse 25 he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So who delivers us? Jesus Christ. And then he says, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So he's saying at the end of verse 25, with my mind I serve the law of God, but in reality with the flesh the law of sin, because I'm still married to the old man, so I'm st I, I want to be married to Christ and I want to be his, but I'm actually still married to the old man, so in reality... In my mind, I'm saying I'm serving God. I'm saying I'm married to him. But in reality, I'm still married to the old man. So in reality, my experience is that of spiritual adultery. Saying I'm married to Christ and yet still married to the wrong person. Now, the last point I want to make is this. If it's not clear that Romans 7 is the carnal man sold under sin, there's a few points to point out here. In Romans 8, verse 7, it says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. 
it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And actually in verse 6 it says, to be carnally minded is death. Romans 7, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, is describing the carnal mind. That is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Um, and verse 8, so then they, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, verse 10 then shows us the remedy. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of, is life because of righteousness. So in order to not have the carnal experience, Christ must come in. The last point I'll make, and this is maybe the most important point, is verse 24 when Paul says, O wretched man that I am. Now I've given, it's been a good year and a half now, so maybe many of you weren't here when I gave this sermon at Advent Hope. The word wretched is found one other place in the Bible. For those of you who heard the sermon, don't answer. For those of you who are here, where, or who weren't here, where else in the Bible is the word wretched found? It's the message to Laodicea, Revelation 3. So the word wretched, you find it in Romans 7 and Revelation 3, and it's not just in English, it's the Greek word talahiparus, and I'm not going to spell it out here. So two places in scripture that the word wretched shows up. The man of Romans 7 and the Laodicean church. And the message to Laodicea is from the faithful and true witness in the time of the judgment. So you come to Revelation 3, Laodicea, the word Laodicea means a judged people. And the judged people is receiving, so if they're being judged, that means we must be going to court. And when they go to court, the faithful and true witness gives testimony of their condition. And we know from Revelation 1 that Jesus is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the faithful and true witness to the seven churches, the first begotten of the dead in the seven seals, and the prince of the kings of the earth in the seven trumpets. So here in Laodicea, as the faithful and true witness, his witness to us is, you're lukewarm and I want to spew you or vomit you out of my mouth, and you think you're good, but actually you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, if you are naked, and all those words tie together, if you are naked, are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ? You are not. And yet, many Seventh-day Adventists say, and I believe they are sincere, but sincerely wrong, so I'm not judging their character, but I hope that people will study this more carefully. If you say that Romans 7 is the, is the converted experience on the way to heaven, what you're saying is, look, I'm a human being, and I sin because I'm a sinner, and that's just the way it is. And because I accept Jesus as my Savior, he covers me with his righteousness, but I keep sinning and sinning and sinning. And yet the faithful and true witness says, if you have the experience of Romans 7, which is wretched, you also happen to be naked, which means you're not covered with Christ's righteousness. 
And what Christ then is saying is, in order to be clothed with my righteousness, the old man must be crucified so that we can be married to Christ and so that Christ then can come in to our lives so that then Christ will be our master, we submit to him. And so instead of sin being our master and sin controlling our lives, Christ lives out his life through us. And so... Okay. It's true. They don't recognize. Yeah, and here's my answer to that point. So Romans 7 recognizes that he's wretched, the man of Romans 7, yet the Laodicean people don't recognize it. And my answer is this, and I'm not saying this is an inspired answer. Take it for what it's worth. If you believe that it's okay to keep sinning on the way to heaven, you're having the experience of Romans 7 thinking that it's okay and not realizing that it's not okay. So Paul is saying in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he's defined what the wretched experience is. Being a servant to sin, being under the control of sin so that you cannot do the things that you want to do and you don't, you're not able to do the things that you want to do. And yet Laodicea says, hey, that's okay. We can be covered with Christ's righteousness even if we keep doing the things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we should be doing. And if you study carefully the new theology of the evangelical gospel, that's exactly what it teaches. The new theology of the evangelical gospel teaches that it's okay to sin as long as you accept Jesus as your Savior. He will cover you and you'll keep sinning on your way to heaven. You don't get victory, and you're just covered, and then when Jesus comes, then you'll be changed. And yet what Paul is clearly teaching in Romans, and when you get to Romans 6 and when you get to Romans 8, is that we can be dead to sin, that sin will not have dominion over us, that we will be the servants of God, not servants to sin. And we see that in Romans 7, when the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads, the four winds of strife will be unleashed and the 144,000 will be prepared. So what I'm saying is that Laodicea has the experience of Romans 7 without realizing that it's a bad experience. They think that that's an okay experience to have. Now Paul clearly defines this is bad, but yet you study some of our theologians of today and they say Romans 7 is okay. If you have the Romans 7 experience that's fine. That was Paul's experience. He was a human being. That's our experience. We're human beings and we're covered with the righteousness of Christ so that's okay. Right. Right. That's true. He's captured by it. Right. And the carnal mind is not going to make that deep. Right. They cannot. Uh-huh. Paul says they can't. Right. But so when Paul sees that he is in this condition, his only remedy that he sees in Romans 7 is through Christ. Right. 
Now, the Laodiceans have to be reminded of this same condition. Exactly. And they say to themselves that, well, really, we're not like Paul says we are. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, well, we're the contrary. Right. As a matter of fact, you are in the miserable poor line of me. Right. So, okay. one group refuses to see it, but Paul, mm -hmm. by the way, this means... And we need to wrap up here. Uh, by, by the way, the seven churches that did in the Laodiceans, Okay. All right. All right. So Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, in conclusion, <clears throat> you know, Romans 7 comes to this conclusion here. But then when you get to Romans 8, verse 1, we want to end on a positive note. So, I'm going to end on Romans 8, verse 1, but I will point out the one other word in Laodicea that I want to point out. It's the word miserable. The only other word, place that that word in the Greek is found is in 1 Corinthians, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So what Jesus is saying to Laodicea is, you think that by your wretched Romans 7 experience, that you're okay, covered with the righteousness of Christ, and that you're on your way to heaven, covered with Christ's righteousness. And what you don't realize is that you're going to find out in the judgment that your hope of Christ in this life was all that it was. It was just in this life. And you will find in the judgment that you're actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. But the good news of the gospel, Romans 8, verse 1, after all of that, Paul comes to his punchline of the gospel in Romans 8, verse 1, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, that's the experience of Romans 7, but after the Spirit, that's the experience of Romans 6 and of Romans 8, which we are going to discover. And when you realize that when Paul developed his case of the gospel, beginning in Romans, that all are under condemnation for sinning against God's law, and that there is a way out of that condemnation and the judgment. When you get to Romans 8 verse 1, we should all praise the Lord as enthusiastically as we possibly can because there is a way to no longer be under condemnation. We were under condemnation. In Romans 3, we see that all the world is subject to the judgment of God or guilty before God because we've all sinned and come short of His glory. And yet, because of the righteousness of Christ, we can be free from condemnation.